welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Scott and I. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How are you? Anyone die lately? Uh, yes, actually, someone did. I'm very sad because... That's too uh, bad. Um, wait, what do you call someone? Uh, a, cent- a centenarian or, or a centenarian? It's like a type of horse. Um, no, uh, I, I, um, I don't know. You're probably right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, uh, uh, another centurion or centenarian has died. A very old this, man has died. But this one made me sad. Yeah. Um, because it was Norman Lear, uh, who was not only, like, obviously a very important figure in American television, um, but also was someone who uh, remained active almost right up until the end um and uh and stayed true to his sort of goals of like using television and using the medium of specifically the television sitcom to uh advance equality in representation and 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 in points of view you, you know yeah um I know that's like, it's, it, I mean, he definitely um, a, a liberal guy in, in his own politics, but um, there's something to be said for him creating a character like Archie Bunker, yeah, and making him a like not losing sight of his humanity, like having a lead character who's a bigot, uh, having a, a plenty of other characters on the show to call him out, but also not forgetting that he's a person yeah he's um, not always just there to be like argued against or put in this place or whatever you know yeah and i think that's like maybe a good lesson for some of us uh, you know in our politically divided times you know that it's you know it's it's good to stand up for causes but uh maybe don't forget that the people on the other side are are people um but also he made a lot of great tv uh um yeah, yeah all I mean, family is 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 my go-to that was when i watched reruns of the most as a kid but uh the list the list is very long yeah I, the only one that i remember being on like i, I feel like all the family wasn't on like the nick at night rotation um at okay. least i don't remember being in the lineup but the jeffersons for sure was i watched a ton of the jeffersons when i was a kid and i always remember like that they at least for an episode had a trans character like in the 70s and the arc was natural because it was like an old army buddy of George's who had transitioned. Um, and so he's expecting his old army buddy to show up and here's this woman. And so it's definitely a, like a typical, like lesson arc in a sitcom of like George coming to accept his own, uh, kind of like, uh, assumptions about that and coming to accept her. But like, I, I always think about that. Anytime people get up in arms about like trans representation now, I'm like, man, this was old hat. This was on Nick at night when I was a kid. <laughs> this was family viewing. Like this is not, this should not be a big deal. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, the whole nature of the show, the Jeffersons was very cool already, but the fact that they then took it a step further and did that kind of stuff with it is amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, his whole career, we kind of figured it was a good top of the show topic because obviously his film work was very limited. He wrote um, a great film called Cold Turkey that, did you see that when, when uh, TCM Fest showed it? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's a really, really funny movie as you might expect. Um, but obviously his major contributions are in the world of TV. 
and you know, far too many shows to list, but most of them pretty, pretty solid stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing Jefferson's reruns. I definitely remember seeing Sanford and Son reruns as a kid. I've never watched a single episode of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, but I know. I that. know I've always like, wanted to. He, he, yeah, he also made some like weird stuff, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. not just like socially, uh, important stuff but uh weird stuff as well and then i feel like there's another like major sh- well at one day at a time which he did in the 70s and 80s and then brought back to netflix yeah um oh and mod which uh i never really saw i know um um b arthur pretty much solely from golden girls and then having gone back and i've seen some old movies she's in um which one is the musical? Mame is the musical, and Amy okay. is the non-musical. Which the one with Lucille Ball, B. Arthur is in that. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, Maud, which have, was uh, I've I know um, made quite an impact by having um, an episode in which Maud decided to get an abortion. Which, oh right. Uh, that's like that's it's not just that like with the Jeffersons they like brought in a character for an episode to do their abortion episode it's like Maud the main character of the show um decides to have an abortion um yeah and then um just because I'm scrolling through he also is one of the credited screenwriters on on the night they rated Minsky's which we just talked about that's right um, yeah I knew uh, I saw something else in there uh yeah um my my memory um one of my memories of about norman lear or normally related stuff is that uh the first movie i saw at the first sundance i went to was um heidi ewing and rachel grady's documentary norman lear just another version of you Hmm. um and it's the that's the only time i've ever gone to like at Sundance, like God, or even tried to go to the like first movie and in, in the Eccles because it's oh, sure because they usually I mean normally they're just another version of you. It's like I'm interested in the subject matter. It's not like it's a you know world beater of a documentary. It's just a a bio bio doc, you know. But uh, and and so most of the stuff they they program there is like very middle of the road like that. Um, but it is kind of fun. I'm glad I did it once to be at the first movie in the Eccles because it really is like the kickoff to the festival. Like it's right. like Robert Redford comes out and like uh addresses everyone, welcomes everyone to the festival. It's it's uh it is very fun. Um and uh uh yeah the movie is a um a great portrait of him and also I think one thing that um uh yeah um you see, I don't know. I don't need to go into all of this, but the the movie is like um, uh, gets into like good times, um, which is an important show that I have to admit I never really watched. Yeah, um, same. It was. It, I don't really remember it being being on, but um, it's really interesting to like. This was a show that he was like, "Let's do all in the family," but with you know a working class lower yeah. middle class black family uh and that's how it started and then kind of like uh family matters i don't know they had this character jimmy jj walker 
just like family matters had Urkel who like was so like such a goofball and, and the stuff that, that kind of became what the show was. And yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, uh, Norman Lear, I think was good based on the documentary, at least was my understanding is good at like recognizing where he came up short and, and never, oh, like, sure. never sort of stopped trying to, to do the work and, and be good, but also make good TV. Uh, so yeah, RIP to Norman Lear. Um, as you know, people always say, as I, you always hear people say, uh, joke when someone this old dies, like I didn't even know he was sick, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he had a good, good long run, but, um, still sad not to have him around in the lands TV landscape. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, I would like to also tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. And today and yesterday, I have been listening to the... This is a thing that a lot of artists do. is like they put out an album and then they put out the deluxe version later in the year. Right. It has a bunch more tracks. Uh, but no real complaints here because I listened to the deluxe version of the debut album from uh, rapper Sexy Red called Hood Hottest Princess, and I listened to it multiple times. Um, I, I've I've said it like I've not, I don't think I've said this on the podcast, but to my like I have like a one friend uh, who like follows rap music, and right. I've said to him like I don't know if I'm like is rap getting worse or am i aging out of it <laughs> um it's the eternal question with everything right yeah yeah uh but if there's been any like new voice in rap in 2023 that has really grabbed my attention and uh and, and made me excited about the the genre it's sexy red she's um so much fun she is so filthy uh, <laughs> um and also i'm i'm not, not just i'm not like you know uh uh being a homer here i'm mean, a home a hometown or not a homer simpson yeah, yeah um she she's from st louis but that's not why i'm saying all this i'd be saying all this um if if uh if, if she were from cleveland or, or whatever but uh anyway so hood hottest princess deluxe edition sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds um uh, man there's so many funny lyrics on uh, on here she says at one point she says tell joe biden i want to suck the president <laughs> <laughs> um anyway um uh it's time to go to my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back. Scott, Hello. Let's, get in, let's get into it, shall we? 
let's tread the boards as they say is that a thing uh, they say i don't think i've ever heard that one before what to to act on a play is to tread the boards news to me man i don't hey you can't hear everything in life i've heard this for the first time it's the thing i've learned today outdated sayings uh, oh crap i froze for a sec yeah did you hear what i said i think mostly okay well i thought you were an old soul like me i guess i'm an older soul um but anyway uh so we're here to talk about movies based on plays now we could this could be like with westerns with mariah e. gates a five-hour episode if we try to talk yeah. about every movie um so uh, i guess i want to hit some of the big ones but also separate them maybe into categories of some sort which is usually how i try to approach these sorts of things but right. um uh now i don't know about you i like because i love to like establish my own rules and then not share them uh, I stuck Perfect. to straight. I stuck to straight plays because I felt yeah. like musicals is its own. It's definitely its own thing, and yeah, I stuck to straight plays for the exact same reason. It's like yeah. it, it just feel like one. They're I mean they're very different forms in both mediums. Like with plays, uh, well, one there's just more elasticity in, in a play. Like it can be almost any length. Musicals, there's kind of a, an expectation of a certain extravagance. Um, and I just thought it'd be more interesting to talk specifically about plays. And it's kind of a form that I've always had a lot of passion for. Um, I did a lot of theater in high school and while I enjoyed putting on musicals and I still love going to musicals, I, I always have a little bit more attachment to straight plays. So I just thought it'd be more interesting to kind of focus in on that and what, um, makes that form so distinct. And also there's kind of a certain template or a couple of templates for musical films, whereas plays, like, especially as I was going through them, there's so many, um, I kind of broke my list down. I tend to do this anyway, but I kind of broke it down chronologically, which was interesting, kind of okay. yielded interesting results. But if you have categories, we could by all means tackle it that way. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't separate mine, separate mine into categories, but some of them kind of presented themselves to me, uh, as I was making my list. And one of the like major subcategories is like, a movie based on a like famous historical play, you know, Romeo and Juliet, yeah. Miss Julie, uh, the importance of being earnest, something like that. Um, where the, the presumed audience goes into the movie knowing this is a famous play that I'm seeing an adaptation of. Um, and, and then how that might be different from something like I'm trying to think of something more, more recent like the father um sure. where like you know maybe you could presume that someone just going to see um the father at the like you know landmark theater or whatever kind of middle breath theater the father, the father play at it's a great movie by the way i don't want to sound like i'm talking shit about it yeah but, uh that they don't need to know it would it's a it's a play you know yeah for sure that's um a good point and actually like i think in some ways that kind of it's at the main arc I was seeing over the course of like dividing them up by history is that like 
I mean, you get a real run of things in the thirties where they just have, because theater was so active in that time. And so there was so many plays being put on and especially when talkies started up, they needed material and they're like, well, people talk in plays. So let's throw, so like some, some of those routine movies I've seen in the thirties, I was surprised to learn were based on plays like jewel robbery or employees entrance or taxi. Um, you know, there's some stuff that's a little bit more yeah. uh, obvious, like safe in hell, which all takes place in like a restaurant okay. Um, at a hotel and you can very much see how it takes place in one space or i know you and i are big fans of street scene which all takes place at like outside a neighborhood um but on like a city block that you could put on stage but then stuff like trouble in paradise which is kind of like a multi-location affair you it's harder to see how that translate into a play or how it originated as a play rather um but it was just like such a fertile ground in those days. But then like things really peak at least artistically in the fifties and you get like some very clear, like the audience would know, for instance, like streetcar named desire um, was definitely like a name play even by that point. Um, and you see more adaptations of like big famous stuff rather than just like, well, we got to pull something in from the script pile. So it might as well be a play. And that, and then from the fifties on that kind of seems like it's, mostly the kind of template of like direct from the stage the new you know yeah. kind of giving a wider audience access to the theater that new york and london are getting um and that's kind of what we've had ever since um yeah i feel like these days you get uh yeah you get some things that are i mean it's, like i said there was a i mean there was a miss julie in the last 10 years it wasn't very yeah. good but um, I, I know I missed it. I kind of wanted to, I love the cast, but I heard some yeah, bad things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of this stuff is, um, and again, I, I'm not really like that aware of what the average person knows about theater. Cause I feel like I know less, I don't know, but like, um, I was looking just like the last 10 years, you've got something like, I feel like God of Carnage was a big deal on the stage. And so when Carnage came out, I feel like a lot of people knew that it was, there were a lot of people who were going to see it knew that it's like, Oh, based on that play that people have, have, have heard of. Um, yeah. I, I mean, given, one, yeah. given how few people saw Carnage, I would guess that most of its audience had heard of the play. Is that true? I didn't really, I don't really I, follow box office that well, but um, I'm just judging like almost anecdotally. It just feels like okay. nobody saw that movie. Um, I liked that movie. I know, uh, obviously, it's it's weird how recently Roman Polanski like got to keep like getting yeah. a lot of attention and and these big stars. Um, but okay, uh, Carnage made way more than I thought it did. It made thirty million at the World Olympics office. Um, okay. I mean, it did get some Golden Globe nominations. Yeah, I kind of liked it too. I do think it has some limitations, um, and I wish I had the play to compare it to, but that played in Los Angeles, like when I first moved here and had zero money. So I w- wasn't yet to go into the theater. Um, and that was when I didn't see it either. Cause I wasn't going to the theater at that time really, but that was one where they had the Broadway cast play yeah. like at the, um, where was it? Uh, it must've been downtown at the Amundsen or yeah. Amundsen. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there was carnage and then there was, um, August Osage County, which yeah. um, I feel like was a, a well-known play, but um, not a very good movie. I know it's like I that was another one where I missed the play, but um, just watching the movie, I could tell how much more effective it would be as the play. Um, like you get but that like, big moment. Yeah. 
you get the big moment where there's it's clearly the end of act two or at the end of act one rather where like julia roberts is like reasserting dominance over the family and like yelling and throwing Meryl Streep to the ground and like there's just so much cutting and it's just so little dramatic impact um but I'm like man on stage that would that would probably rock yeah and it's just um I mean we again because we just did the William Friedkin thing I watched Bug and Killer Joe recently which are also both adaptations of Tracy Letts plays and August Osage County feels like it's from a different playwright and different a different universe Um, yeah Around the time it came out, Friedkin was asked if he ever had any interest. He's like, "No, I don't want to do that." <laughs> it's like almost like insulting towards. I was like, "Dude, you probably like like Tracy Letts. He's up a little." <laughs> I was Pulitzer Prize winning play. Um, and then uh, so you've got that category, and then another category. I mentioned the father, but playwrights directing movies of their mm. own plays is also a subcategory um that came up a couple of times I'm, the father um rosencrantz and Gil- too, right uh the humans yeah and rosencrantz and gilmans turned dead to go back to the 90s um which is, uh, is that, that is directed by tom stoppard right uh, I, it's been a while since i watched it but yeah i saw that a very long time ago so i didn't even include it on my list but um i didn't know that he directed that actually if he did no no i'm no i'm I'm checking Second, myself. No, nope, you're right. It. Yeah. Ah, thank you. Directed by Tom Stoppard. Good, good, good memory, uh, David. Um, so yeah, that that feels uh, interesting because it's like, um, I, I don't know if you ever like, uh, I don't know if you ever a big Mitch Hedberg fan, but he had a a joke once that was like, um, if you get good enough at stand up, people want to know if you can act, but like they're two different things that's like yeah. saying like oh you're a really good cook can you farm <laughs> um, and i feel like uh playwriting and film directing are like the venn diagram overlap is pretty thin yeah um but it's interesting how i mean the father the humans rosencrantz and Gilmore, we just named three good movies so maybe that's it's true maybe it works or maybe we just tend to watch good movies. Um, um, I just thought of another one too. Uh, Doubt, John Patrick Shanley's second feature film, um, which I never saw. It's pretty good. Um, it's definitely a little like coveragey in that way. Of like sometimes you see these play adaptations where it's like just put the camera here, put the camera there, cut between the two, call it a day. Um, I don't remember having kind of like the more i don't know like arch quality i guess that the other three we rattled off kind of have um where it kind of even if they don't like properly assume a sort of proscenium there's still kind of the sense of a removal that you would have from an audience to stage perspective this is more like the like you're in the room kind of mold of a play adaptation okay um i was trying to see like i'm looking at david mammoth's filmography as a director to see how many of the things he's directed were plays first. oh yeah and i feel like i feel like oleana is the only one and that movie sucks <laughs> i never saw it <laughs> oh, man I, but i like I, I that's one that's like it's probably it's probably a good play in the right hands but um uh it's not a good movie um and then he directed the Winslow boy, which was based on a play, but not his play. He wrote the screenplay. That's interesting. A playwright yeah. turning someone else's play 
uh, into his screenplay. But uh, it seems like a lot of the big stuff you think of when you think of David Mamet as a director are like things that he wrote for the screen. That's true. That's interesting. I never thought about that before. Mamet, like, I, I kind of went through a period where I was like, I should catch up on David Mamet. And then, like, I feel like he just fell so far out of fashion that now I'm like, do I want to catch up with David Mamet stuff? Yeah, I mean, I don't think looking at his directorial career. Oh, I guess he made. Oh, he did that TV movie. This was ten years ago, but the where Al Pacino played Phil Spector. I oh forgot. yeah, I didn't realize that was him. Other than that, the last feature he made was Red Belt, which I didn't think was very good. Um, uh, but um, before that, he made Spartan, a movie that Tyler and I really go to bat for. I've seen Spartan. Um, it's cool. Yeah, uh, heist is fun. State and Maine is fun, but probably hasn't aged well. Um, yeah, I saw that a long time ago. I yeah. guess I was thinking more of like his yeah stage to screen adaptations, whether he directed them or not. Oh, okay. Um, well, there's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, uh, which I I do love. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Um, I only saw the American Buffalo movie once when I was like nineteen. I don't know. It, it definitely like felt like a play in a way that is not, I don't necessarily mean as a compliment, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I just, I saw that on Broadway last year and kind of feel like that's but the form I'm going to stick with it in. Uh, but then you're, there's um, um, a play he wrote that has been adapted twice. Um, the play is called sexual perversity in Chicago, but both the film adaptations are called about last night. Um, Oh, and I, right. never, I never saw the first one, the um, Roblo and Demi Moore one. Um, but I did see the 2014 uh, I'm seeing one that was the sort of um, same, like same um, story, but with an all black cast um, and um, some good downtown loca- uh, LA location shooting. Um I'd be curious to, I don't know the, the first about last night. I wonder if it has the same problem. Cause the problem with about last night is that the, the central romance between Michael Ely and joy Bryant is boring because the secondary romance slash comic relief is Kevin Hart and Regina Hall. Uh. <laughs> they completely run away with the movie. And anytime we get back to like the, like, Oh no, is he going to cheat on her? Or is she going to find out? It's like, I don't care. Yeah. I want to see Kevin Hart, Regina Hall, like bouncing off each other in more ways than one. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but there, yeah, I'm probably missing some mammoth uh, play adaptations. Um, yeah, it's weirdly hard to find a list just now as I was looking. Like his Wikipedia is pretty much separated by what he did on them, not like yeah. whether or not they've been turned into a movie. Um, oh, well, there's Edmund, which is um, insane. Yeah, I've always been curious about that one. Yeah, it's just, it's Stuart Gordon, um, and yeah, if you want to see like David Mamet filtered through like a horror, <laughs> like it's not, it's still like the same story. It's not a horror story, but it's Stuart Gordon is a horror director, and he approaches yeah. it in that way. It's, um, I mean, it definitely wouldn't like. I think Edmund is very much like would be would fall under the rubric of problematic today. Sure, sure. But, um, uh, and it's not it's it's not exactly fun to a fun watch, but it's uh it's pretty fascinating. Got a real eclectic cast, I'll tell you that. Looking at this, 
Well, hold on. Uh, off the top of my head, yeah, I, I haven't seen it in probably fifteen years. I know it's William H Macy, and yeah. I know Julia Stiles is in it. She sure is. And I remember Bokeem Woodbine is in it. Um, he is not on the oh. top of the cast list, but might be further down. Oh, yep, way further down. But yeah. All right. Yeah, that's all I remember. Okay, you've also got well, Rebecca Pigeon, of course. Um, yeah, you've got uh, oh, this Biling. Why not? Uh, Joe Mantegna, the, the more expected than like Denise Richards, Mina Savari, oh, wow. and George Went. Wow, yeah, hold on, it keeps getting weirder. Yeah, there's some names in here I don't know, so you might be able there's, to. Speak. Oh, um, Debbie Mazar, D- yeah, Debbie Mazar, Dulé Hill from the West Wing, right? Um, yeah. Jeffrey Combs, of course, is a Stuart Gordon movie. He generally puts Jeffrey oh, okay. Combs in his, in his movies. Um, Jeffrey Combs is the star of Reanimator, which is... Gotcha. The, have you seen Reanimator? I have not seen Reanimator. Oh, it's super cool. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Stuart Gordon I haven't seen. Didn't he do... What was the one... It might have been with Mina Savari about... It was loosely based on a true story about a woman who, like ran over or hit a guy with her car and he was like lodged halfway in her windshield and she like just went home and parked in her garage and like left him there oh yeah i, I know the story but i didn't know there was a movie i feel like it's mina savari it's definitely a Stuart gordon movie but uh oh well we're i love when we get off topic like this yeah absolutely <laughs> uh what else do you have for for plays while i oh stuck is the name of the movie okay and is it Mina Subari? It is. Man, my memory is Look at that. on point today. Just nailing on it. Point. Yeah. Uh, all right. What else? Um, any other sort of, I don't know, categories or, or groupings that you wanted to uh, Yeah. I mean, I wanted to briefly note because, I mean, I can only really note it in brief because it's not an area I'm too familiar with, but there were a ton of adaptations. So I mentioned there was kind of like a takeoff of this in the thirties where they were like, people are talking, we need material. Let's go turn the stage. But there were a ton of stage adaptations in the twenties too. Um, so Wikipedia had this gigantic list of like, it w- was hardly every uh, film that's based on a play because it's like mm-hmm. it, at the very least, just the, the Wikipedia entries, but um, it was a pretty substantial list. And so like for the thirties, they had over a thousand, but the second the decade with the second most number of plays that were listed on Wikipedia or de- second most number of movies that were based on plays that were listed on Wikipedia was the twenties. There was over 700 they had listed there. Um, and it's just not, I mean, I'm sure tons of those are lost now too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've at least seen a number of movies that are in Slubich made based on plays. And it's like, it's not necessarily a form that you would think would work, but like you and I love, so this is Paris and that was based yep. on a play. Um, okay. And that's one where I really feel like he's tapping into the energy you can get in a play, but in a very cinematic way without having to rely on just like endless intertitles to do the dialogue and stuff. Um, Cause I think it's important to remember that like the principle, like, <sighs> I'm not sure the way to put this, but like the principal element that makes plays and art is not dialogue, it's action. So you could theoretically have a silent play on stage and it would play great because you're watching people do things. It's not about the dialogue necessarily. And like Lubitsch for sure. I mean, definitely in Silas's Paris, but like Lady Woodenver's fan, the Merit Circle and a couple others are 
still really solid. But so this Paris, he really nails like how to translate that material into action. Um, and okay. then he made like tons of other play, uh, movies based on plays. Like, I mean, I mentioned Trouble in Paradise, which still to me is best film, but um, like Design for Living, which was a Noel Coward play that was kind of, I think, pretty radically transformed for the screen. Um, if for no other reason, you can't quite end it with full on menage a trois. Um, <laughs> but um, like Angel's super awesome. The shop around the corner, I've actually seen the play that was based on and uh, they definitely improved it. I mean, the play's fine. It's solid. It's good material, but um, they took it to another level with that adaptation for sure. Um, yeah, that is reminding me of um, uh, what two things that you said are reminding me of. Like, uh, the only silent movie without looking it up, the only silent movie I could remember is definitely based on a play is the 1916 Sherlock Holmes okay. uh, movie, which um, uh, Flick Rally put out on Blu ray, and I have it, and I'm glad I have it, but it's not that great. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, Speaking of yeah, things that were um, obviously a lot of stuff gets changed, um, and sometimes I feel like we could talk. We I think maybe the next thing we get into is like poor adaptations. Sure, um, but like because one of the things that often like um, I think sort of uh, uh, hobbles these movies is like we have to put this in as many different locations as possible. Yeah. So they're trying to hide the fact that it's a play, but sometimes they can change things. So uh, I, I haven't seen key Largo, the play, but I've seen key Largo, the movie, which has a very like dramatic adventurous ending out on a boat. Right. Not at all. Not at all how the play ends. Cause it, I don't think the play ever leaves the, the hotel. I don't really know how to play how the play ends, but that's a, a complete like sort of left turn from, uh, from the source material that obviously works. Uh, I'm sure there's some people who are mad. Yeah. I mean, but like sometimes you need to, yeah, it's always a tough call of like when, to, how to open up a play, if at all. Um, and I think like the one I always think of is doing it wrong, even though I, I've heard recently, some people kind of like this movie, but uh, the adaptation of proof um, which ironically, so I, we did that play in high school and we took it to the international thespian festival in Nebraska, where I know you had gone several years prior. Um, what did you, what did you guys put on when you went there? Bus stop. Uh, bus stop. Yeah. Bus stop. Yeah. Um, another play that's been turned into a movie. That's the movie's not very good. Um, I never saw the movie. It's Marilyn Monroe though. Right? Yeah. So Marilyn's amazing in it, okay. but like Don Murray is like off his rocker and, uh, what's the director's name i can't remember now um something logan joshua logan um who did an amazing adaptation of picnic which is like one of the best played film adaptations ever um but bus stop is not very good um anyway so getting back to where i started with this um yeah so we took proof to the international thespian festival and like i don't know if you did this when you were there or if they had this when you were there but they had like little classes you could take during the course of them um and a few of us took some class on, I think, just like the idea of adapting a play into a, a film. And because I remember they touched on that idea that like in plays, obviously, like scenes can go on for however long you need them to. And you can have an entire act. That's one scene. Um, but on screen, like at, in, at least the, I think at, at the time there was more or less like ingrained sense of like screenplay speak, which somewhat still exists. But like 
people just relying on like the Sid Field book or whatever. And they're like, you know, in a screenplay, you need to change locations or change scenes every uh, page and a half or whatever their mark was. And then the adaptation of Proof comes out like a year or two later. And I remember watching and be like, this is exactly the thing they were teaching us at that class <laughs> where like, it feels like they were just trying to continue to the scene, but she's like, oh, now we're in a, a restaurant. Now we're in a clothing store. Um, but still keeping the dialogue pretty much intact, just randomly changing the scene to some new location each time. Um, so that one always struck me as a little bit poor. I, I feel like there was well, one. Well, another one I think you and I agree on um, more recently, um, The Two Popes is what the movie is called. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's based on a play, and it's very clear what comes from the play and what was added to like flesh out the world because all the stuff that was added is the worst part of the movie yeah um they all these like flashbacks to the uh young the young pope not the jude law uh series but um uh yeah whereas the movie actually i think is remains pretty gripping and plenty visually interesting when it's just jonathan price and anthony hopkins walking around and talking and arguing uh, I, that's the stuff I like about that movie. Um, all, all the extra stuff um, to, is is uh, a waste of time. Yeah, I often forget about that movie. Um, mostly because I was just like, not I me mean, wasn't miserable watching it because yeah, it does have those good scenes in it, but it just it did feel like it was constantly undermining itself in like a regrettable way. Um, um, what do you think? Uh, I, I what do you think of Rope? Um, so that was one that I was going to bring up is like kind of my ideal adaptation form of like, okay. you really just keep it in the room. And so rope does, uh, well, rope of course has like the interesting call of like trying to pass it off as like, it, I mean, it doesn't quite do this. It has the reputation of trying to pass off stuff off as all being all done in one shot yeah. and then like moving the camera around and like kind of gimmicky ways in order to cover that up. Um, the last time I watched it though, I remember being like, Oh, there's more, clear cutting in this than i remember there being we're like oh, they're really? cutting yeah, yeah like between people in scenes not like as much as you would in a conventional film by any means and they do plenty of those things where like i guess we're gonna go behind this guy's back in order to cut between the mags on the film um but there are a couple sequences where they're doing like cutting for drama um so it's not like a total giving itself over to that but what it does do that i love um is it will position the camera on like certain objects or on certain people who aren't necessarily the subject of the dialogue. Um, so like, I remember there's one scene, I can't remember the detail because it's been a, several years since I last saw it, but there was like one scene where Jimmy Stewart doesn't have any lines. It's other people talking, but the camera stays on him through a long dialogue exchange because he's the one thinking through what everybody's saying. And another part, like, as you might expect rests on the like whatever you call it the chest i guess that they have the body stuffed in um to kind of like heighten the tension and in that way it kind of felt like hitchcock was like okay if i'm the one watching the play these are the parts of the scene that i'm paying attention to and it kind of felt like putting us more in his vantage point of watching the play man you're really making me want to watch it again because it's great my my, my feeling when i watched it however many many years ago it was was that the the attempts to make it seem like it was all one shot were way too obvious and gimmicky and kept frustrating me um 
Yeah, I mean, maybe because like that was my first impression too, and then watching it a second time, I was kind of expecting that to be my big hang-up. Right. Um, right. and so that felt like less of an issue the second time. Um, and I was more noticing the things that I didn't remember that were so pleasurable. So you know, it might be one of those things that just like hits better on a second view. Um, um but have you seen so, his adaptation of Dial for Murder? No, I haven't seen that one. Okay, so Dial for Murder is awesome because it's like he's only three D movie, and he uses 3d on a play which seems like the last thing you would use for a 3d movie where there's like you know there's a couple of definitely the big like murder scene is some very like overt um action towards the camera and stuff but it's mostly used for like depth and honestly mostly used to like put stuff in the foreground and it kind of creates that sense of i was mentioning near the top of the show a sense of like a proscenium where there's a clear separation from the audience but still like the dimensions you would get with a stage play um that's a it's a really cool movie uh yeah i actually think i mean 3d kind of makes sense for a play adaptation because if you were to go if you were to go to see a play yeah the actors would be there in 3d and the sets would be in 3d they um, sure would. uh but I've, I've pointed out when we did our afi fest wrap-up when we were talking about anselm um that like present day like digital 3d as opposed to like that era of stereo 3d uh when done right is kind of it's less about stuff coming out at you and more about the opposite like giving depth yeah and i think like dial m is a yeah. great forerunner to that kind of thing i mean like i said the murder scene definitely has some like stuff coming out of you and really using the form in that way but like the whole rest of the movie which is the bulk of it um is like just used for depth and setting a, a certain because sometimes you'll get just this like uneasy tension where there will be like I don't know if this is exactly an object using it, but there'll be like a pencil holder or something like at the edge of a desk that's like taking up more space in your mind than you would expect it to. Um, yeah. But it kind of like sets off the scene in kind of like an uneasy way. Um, so yeah, that Hitchcock guy, he can direct a motion picture. Yeah. Have we, has there ever been a Battleship Retention episode just about 3D movies? I don't think so, but I would be happy to do it because I love 3D yeah. movies. Yeah, I find them fascinating. I mean... Um, what was it like a few a couple of uh tcm fests ago they showed i the jury uh in oh yeah i didn't see it 3d it's so cool it's so fun because it's like mike hammer being like a of you know a brute you know yeah. um uh and i want you know if you think about like so i've seen kiss me kate on dvd yeah. not in 3d but it's very clear like when watching that like what's supposed to be in 3d when they're like tossing a bowl of fruit at the camera or something like that yeah you know? i remember this uh, part where they like, throw some fabric at the camera yeah um but i the jury has my camera like you know saying one of his like you know uh hard-boiled like wisecracks and then flicking his cigarette at the camera i <laughs> <laughs> love it it's so great um other bad pl- bad adaptations now i am no nowhere near the Billy Wilder hater that you are, but uh, if I never see the seven year itch again, I'll be fine. Yeah. The seven year itch is like, there's a lot of stuff in the fifties that I have down. That's like very much taking advantage of that being kind of in vogue and fashionable, but not finding anything cinematic to do with the material. Yeah. Yeah. What a dull movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, most of my like kind of bad stage adaptations and most of my favorite stage adaptations are from the 50s but a lot of bad ones are so like that and the big knife 
Um, was, oh, I like the big knife. You do? Oh man, I couldn't. I couldn't get on board with it. I, there's like this strain of like post streetcar stuff where everyone's trying to be Brando, and you know, not that many people can be Brando. I don't know, but I guess I mean I'm just fascinated by the uh, the gay the the homoerotic eroticism and gay undertones of the big knife that sure like like um what's the story jack palance is like an an actor and rod steiger is like is the studio head who's trying to bully him into taking the role it's been a long time since i've seen it same i couldn't tell you many details other than i remember feeling jack palance was really off base but he like lives with a young man okay (laughs) um in in the movie who you see like going out to the pool in his towel or whatever um and i'm like i'm I'm like i'm watching it because stuff that i think there's stuff in like let's see fried green tomatoes is an example of a movie speaking of also produced uh partially produced by uh norman lear um fried green tomatoes is based on a novel in which it that it's about lesbians okay and watching the movie version now, 30 years after it came out, the idea that anyone like my parents or whatever could have watched this movie at the time and not gotten that it was about lesbians <laughs> seems insane to me. But sure. people, the stuff wasn't on their radar, you know? Yeah. So I find the big knife fascinating because the gay uh, like undertones are so strong that i have to wonder if these like jack palance and rod steiger paragons of masculinity <laughs> like do they know what's going on sure um, yeah so i maybe i find the big knife more fascinating than good i can dig that I, I do have a copy of it maybe i'll i'll give it another spin one of these days um but it, yeah i mean that was not actually that uncommon because uh, i wonder too if with the big knife that was something they that was more explicit in the play because there was a lot of stuff uh adaptations that i was reminding myself of that there is like not like explicit gay material and like you see two guys going at it on stage but like right. <laughs> in the dialogue it's clear that there's gay material um it's like tea and sympathy the vincent vanelli movies adapted from a play um and it's about uh, a dormitory that's kind of run by like the football coach. Apparently this is the way dorms were run in the early 20th century. Um, and his wife is like, you know, she's living there with him basically. And is kind of on hand to provide as the, t- as the title suggests uh, tea and sympathy to the boys who are like homesick or whatever else. And she kind of forms this bond with a young man who in the play is very definitely gay, but in the movie is just like, kind of coded as like a sissy boy um and like doesn't okay. fit in because he doesn't play football that kind of thing um it's a great 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 movie but it's very obvious from a modern perspective what they're going out of their way to censor um similarly uh have you seen the children's hour thought we might have no. talked about that but i couldn't remember no. yeah that so is children- on you know i have many lists yeah uh the children's hour is on one of my to watch lists it's pretty high up too so i might i might actually get to it <laughs> I, I love it um we were talking actually i think a couple of weeks ago about doing an episode of if we could think of enough examples of directors who remade their own films um and william wyler kind of did here because he adapted the children's hour as a movie called these three in the 30s where 
um, the lesbian text of it had to be completely eliminated. Like there was no way they could go over the, and this was, it wasn't even pre code. This was like 1936. Um, and so it's about like these two girls fighting over one guy instead. Um, and it's like by those standards, a pretty solid adaptation and good movie. Um, but the sixties version with, um, Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine isn't able to be like completely explicit about it, but a little more clear, um in its insinuations about the fact that these two women who are school teachers um are in fact also lovers um and it's causing a commotion amongst the school as they kind of like uncover this fact um so that's another one where like again they kind of had to bury it but by that point the production code was breaking down enough where they could make it a little more explicit than tea and sympathy which i think was Mm -hmm. not quite 10 years prior but earlier enough that um they had to kind of bury that. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, no, I didn't feel cut off at all. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm trying to confirm if this is correct. Um, I know Peter O'Toole has the record for most competitive acting Oscar nominations without a win. I'm okay. pretty sure. But I feel like he also holds a record because I think he's the only person to have been nominated for playing the same character in two unrelated films, both of which are stage adaptations. He played Henry II in Beckett and in The Lion in Winter. Right. Um, both of which, oh, I remember, I mean, Lion in Winter I've seen much more recently and I know it was great. Beckett I remember being great, but it's been a long time uh, since I've seen it. Um but uh, have you seen Beckett? I have not seen Beckett, and I saw The Lion Winter in college, so it's been okay. almost 20 years. Well, I was trying to, like, it came to my mind because I was like, I wonder if there's gay undertones in Beckett that I missed um, oh, sure. when I was, like, 19 or whatever. But uh, the Wikipedia doesn't mention anything about that. Huh. <laughs> um, so they don't uh, exist. Uh yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, directed by Peter Glenville. I don't know who that is. What else would he? I do not know either. No. Uh, well, yeah, he didn't make that many things. Uh, yeah, not a lot that I've heard of. All right. Okay, um, let's get back to the movies. Yeah. I mean, uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is one that I think changes around locations in a good way yes yeah, it, so it, it gets away with it by having like the chinese restaurant and the car and the phone booth and and, and a few different things like that yeah and so I've, i haven't seen the play i've only read it and as i recall yeah. those different locations are in it but obviously not like interspersed in the way that they are in the movie where it's okay. like you're kind of constantly in all those locations whereas in the play it's like each scene is kind of separated off and then they kind of come together at the end and you kind of have to form the connections yourself of how they relate to one another um but yeah i mean that's like because mostly because they keep the dog on tack and also because i think they form that idea of kind of like these isolated environments where even when they're at the bar it doesn't so I, I often fault movies these days for like feeling like they only take place with like three people but i kind of feel like that's also the key to success when you're adapting a play is keeping that sense of like almost purgatory or like isolation where it does feel like these are the only two people in the world or like the only handful of people out there um there's something about like that kind of boilerplate energy i think for especially for a play like that where it's so much about how this world like obsesses and corrupts these guys i think it's 
so valuable. Um, and that's that's a movie that I um, I got to know the movie well on VHS, cropped to four. Oh, three. yeah. And so I was able to see like the great performances. I love the script, but I always thought of it like for years, I thought of it as kind of less stodgily directed adaptation until I saw it in widescreen and uh, on DVD and and actually found it uh, to be beautifully um, balanced and, and composed. But then, I mean, that James Foley, that director, like, I mean, he works, he worked plenty after that, but didn't make a lot of stuff that I liked. Uh, um, or he didn't make a lot of stuff that I saw if I'm being honest, but he, he did do one, he did one movie that I dislike called confidence. Um, and then uh, he did those, those 50 shades sequels, I think. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, know he works a lot in TV. Yeah. He did an episode of cannibal of cannibal of Hannibal. <laughs> uh, let me see which one season one sorbet that i never know from the titles of can of hannibal episodes um name them after meals what use is yeah. that uh, hotel room bathtub a man is found in a hotel room bathtub with his with his kidney removed oh yeah that's not an especially notable episode yeah i don't i'm, I'm I did a rewatch within the last year and i don't remember much i saw that episode, episode quite recently and okay. yeah it's like a kind of cool idea for a story, but certainly not in the direction. There's nothing exceptional. Yeah. I've always wanted to see his movie after dark, my sweet, which is supposed to be great. Oh, okay. Um, what year is that? That's 90. So it's the movie he made before Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, I have, I actually haven't seen any of his other films. Jason Patrick. What's he up to? <laughs> great question. I'm um, just thinking about him weirdly. Really? Why? I was thinking about, of all things, the Alamo from two thousand three, two. Yeah, I know it's a movie you and Tyler love. I haven't seen it. Yeah, because I was thinking about like, um, yeah, two thousand four. He plays James. It's not Bowie. It's Bowie. I think. Sure. Bowie. I don't know. Um, and I was thinking about the fact that the. The 2004 Alamo makes it clear that James Bowie, whatever, one of the heroes of the Alamo, is a slave owner. Oh, interesting. And I was wondering if they made it now, 20 years later, if they would uh, elide that or or not. I feel like they or would just, like... Or just at least not go out of their way to make it clear the way the 2004 one does. Yeah, I feel like they would just write him out, honestly. Like, I, I don't know how important he is to the story, <laughs> but I kind of feel like they would try to avoid him at all costs. Yeah, that's probably the way they'd go. So, yeah, for some reason that came to mind, and I was thinking about your friends and neighbors, which, uh, oh, yeah, we haven't talked about Neil LeBute at all. Um, Mostly because I'm not that familiar with his work, so you'd have to do the heavy lifting there. Well, I'm also trying to, like, uh, like, like uh, um, David Mamet's situation, I'm trying to remember or look up which of his works because he's a playwright and a film director but not yeah. everything a lot of stuff like your friends and neighbors i'm looking it up with it se- appears to have been written for the screen uh um, oh, okay and i don't know maybe in the company of men i'm pretty uh, sure that's a play was a play and then the um the one with paul rudd and rachel vice that was i'm almost certain was a play 
Um, oh, the shape but, of things. The shape of things. Yeah, that was yes, a play. that was a play. Um, so let's see. Uh, yeah, in the company, men was a play. Um, yeah, your friends and neighbors was not. The shape of things was, and then, yeah, his uh, his career went off in a in a weird direction. Sure did. Um, in a way that I kind of find like welcoming um but uh yeah i don't know um how much so wait what what have you have you seen any i obviously don't think i've seen any yeah i haven't seen any of the ones okay. you mentioned i can't think of any others that you haven't mentioned that i have seen well he did uh oh man there's uh a really strange uh, there's a Chris Rock movie from 2007 called I Think I Love My Wife that, uh, oh, no. Now I'm getting yeah, confused. That's based on something else. Yeah, no, no, it's it's, it's based on an Eric Romare movie, which right, is hilarious. Yeah. But for some reason, I thought he wrote that with Chris Rock. But I, I feel like he and Chris Rock worked together on something. Um... Nurse Betty. Okay, yeah, Nurse Betty. That's a strange that's a strange fucking movie. <laughs> I've not seen it. Uh yeah, I mean, um Morgan Freeman and Chris Rock play uh hitmen who spoilers for a movie from nineteen from two thousand or whatever, um, are actually father and son. We don't find out that out until the very end. Okay. Uh, um and they're supposed to kill they kill Aaron Eckhart in the opening scene. I don't remember why he owes money yeah. or something. And then nurse Betty, Betty Renee Zabiger is Aaron Eckhart's wife comes home, sees them and then goes into this disassociative state where she thinks she's a character in her favorite sitcom. And then she goes to Los Angeles to be in the sitcom, still thinking not sitcom soap opera, still thinking okay. she's that character. And so Morgan Freeman and Chris Rock are following her across the country so they can find her and kill her because she's a witness, but she has no idea of any of this because she's completely disassociated. And also Morgan Freeman falls in love with her. Why not? <laughs> there's a there's a, a part that Tyler and I laughed at where like Chris Rock gets a, a tip. He's like, he's like, Oh yeah, someone we saw someone we know thinks they saw her in Tulsa or whatever. They described her, uh, you know, perfectly, you know, five foot three blonde hair and Morgan Freeman is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blonde hair, all that. Did they mention grace? Did they say anything about <laughs> toys? <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. What a strange movie. Um, yeah. I also forgot that Neil the last year did the other Justin long horror movie house of darkness which, that I did not see, which I really liked. Yeah. By the way. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's strange that, um, and then that's one that is not based on the play, but absolutely could be, it takes sure. place almost entirely in, in one room. Um, but, uh, um, what was I going to say? Uh, it's interesting that Justin Long, who like, I feel like came up as like the, you know, lovable, Cute underdog type of character, and then two mo two horror movies in the same year. Yeah, played like a greasy misogynistic piece of shit who like gets what's coming to him. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel like that really kind of like, um, 
pinpoints how our sort of like post me too our like understanding of who like the bad men are uh totally yeah oh okay i know what i was thinking of with the <laughs> okay. new thing he did the american remake of death at a funeral oh uh, right yeah with with chris rock and and a pretty great cast which i never saw i only saw the the british version um but yeah, I knew he did something with 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 Chris Rock, other than other than Nurse Betty, other uh, than the Eternal Nurse Betty. Yeah, but Neil Butte also made um, Lakeview Terrace, which is a low key fave of mine. Okay, um, and also insane to think now that like a white director made a movie right. about a black man who's racist against white people <laughs> yeah is, a black uh, cop who's racist against white people right that's right yeah um but that's definitely the kind of like third rail type of thing that he sure <laughs> seems, yeah seems to be seems to be drawn to but uh yeah lakeview terrace is a cool movie um and uh well we, we do our uh on, on the patreon you and i do our uh fun game yeah where we try to remember uh what we the circumstances of when we saw certain movies and we call movies out to each other. Uh, you can f- listen to those. If you join up at uh, patreoncom slash battleship pretension, try to remember to give me Lakeview terrorists one of these uh, days. Cause it's a, it's a decent story. Okay. Um, I will have to see Lakeview terrorists so I can have my right. own story. Yeah. Um, uh, so I was trying to think of a way to pivot out of this and back to the topic. And I think I did, okay, um, okay. which is that like, so Nila boot is, is known for like, kind of like, controversial or semi-controversial kind of subject matter um and the whole genesis of this episode came because i finally saw the film adaptation of the house of yes have you seen the house of yes oh yeah i have i mean i was in high school yeah uh, and i saw it on vhs but um yes i um have seen it and really enjoyed it yeah i totally loved it um but like for those who don't know and like this is not a spoiler because the movie is tipping its hand very clearly within the first like five minutes but it does revolve around um an incestuous relationship that uh brother and sister uh parker posey and josh hamilton are having um and just kind of got me thinking as we were kind of talking about neil the boot of all the different kind of like stage well really like state or place to begin with but then adaptations thereof that in some way or another do kind of like push the edges as far as um uncomfortable subject matter goes so i was trying to look through my list of like other things like that um there's that movie una from like i guess at this point gosh seven years ago turns out um which is uh rooney mara and ben mendelson and like they throw in some other characters but it's kind of it's mostly a two-hander as i recall between the two of them um and like slowly peels away the fact that um he was like abusing her sexually for many years prior to them kind of quote-unquote reuniting um and well i mean we talked about the other freaking stuff bug and killer joe which are definitely like very uncomfortable experiences (laughs) um yeah and uh that movie rabbit hole um was a really did you see that no i didn't yeah it's good it's good um but um yeah there's kind of this i think fairly rich history of the theater kind of like pushing the edges on 
audience acceptance or comfort with various subject matter. And sometimes in like very playful ways, um, you know, I think for the top, for its time, the birdcage was a per- pretty like progressive film. Um, and maybe wouldn't be the kind of thing that you would make if it hadn't, didn't have kind of like a rich theatrical tradition behind it. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of solid stuff in there. Oh, closer to from uh, 2004 is like it's a very kind of like archetypal like this is men and this is women. What if they came into conflict kind of thing? But like it's got some edge to it. It's got some sparks. It's not the kind of stuff you'd usually associate with Julia Roberts. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember loving closer, but uh, maybe I was too scandalized. That that must be it. No, I think if anything, like closer, just like has a bit of like not quite edge lord, but that kind of like edgy arty thing of like oh yeah, they're going to talk about what, semen. Like, yeah, I mean the fact that America's Sweetheart Julia Roberts is talking about like someone coming on her face. Yeah, is, uh, uh, it's a it's a left hook. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't and I can't remember what the central twist was in tape. Um that Richard Linklater movie, the adaptation of the play that takes place in that right. hotel room. But I feel like that also involves like sexual assault in some way. Um, yeah, I forgot about that movie. That's a good movie. It is a good movie. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Ethan Hawke's character has come back into town to Lansing, Michigan okay. because his old buddy, uh, what's his name? Robert Sean Leonard, right. From dead poet society and other things. Sounds great. Um, has a like experimental short film in the Lansing Film Festival, which actually is like a major American festival for experimental short film. I don't know if you know that. I do not. Uh, but uh, um, so he's ostensibly come back to just hang out. So he's like, just like, hey, come over to my hotel room and we'll like go out to dinner or something. But then he and he's Ethan Hawke is like crushing beers, crushing rolling rocks. I remember the whole movie. Okay. Um, and you realize that what this is really about is the reason he's come back is that he um, raped a, a friend of theirs played by Uma Thurman when they were like in high school or college or something. And he is coming back to apologize to her. And maybe that's why he's drinking so much is to like work up the courage. Mm. And so Robert Sean Leonard calls Uma Thurman over there and uh that's when things start to get like yeah that power balance changes of like uma thurman initially is like um you have nothing to apologize for this didn't happen the way you remember it but then maybe she's playing some sort of like power trip on him i remember thinking that's a really cool movie yeah it's been obviously a long time since since i remember almost nothing about it other than that i really dug it um yeah yeah, man Richard Linklater is one of the, I mean, obviously he's like always talk about as the guy who comes in and out of experimental phases and I'm waiting for him to re-enter his experimental phase. Cause when he's in it, it's so good. I haven't seen Hitman. Nor have I, which is supposed to be great, but it's supposed to be like kind of a crowd pleaser. So like more okay. in the mold of like a school of rock and like a very approachable audience friendly kind of movie, which he can totally knock out of the park, but obviously well, I, I'm always eager for the other side. I was lamenting that because netflix bought hitman i was lamenting that i was probably never going to get to see it in a theater but it just got announced as part of the spotlight section at sundance so i might try and see it in a theater while i'm at sundance yeah i mean you know these movies do get released in la you can uh you can roll up to the lemleys they'll show their netflix movies oh is it lemley it used to be i pick 
Yeah, um, for a while it was the only I pick, but Lemley's pretty steadily gotten the Netflix stuff. Um, so okay. in that like two week period when they put stuff out in theaters, you can go see, um, you know, May December or whatever. But I mean, that depends. But like, they do that for awards qualification. But if they're putting Hitman out in April or whatever, I don't know. They haven't announced when it is. Um, is that still going to get a theatrical run? It just depends on the deal they signed. Um, okay. So it's not always just awardsy stuff. It just depends on whether or not that was part of their acquisition of it. But I remember um, trying to double check to see if this was in fact not an awards season play. As I remember, yeah. So High Flying Bird did get released in theaters. Okay. Um, and that was I'm, I found out February release. That was a little later, but even earlier than that. Um, and I remember seeing that at the limb. I, I didn't see it at the limb myself, but I remember it was playing there. So high fly, this is like a strange bit of like trivia that maybe is only interesting to me. High flying bird came out, as I recall, in January of uh, 2019. Is that yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Well, that was the Sundance, but February was the release. Okay. So February 2019. And then uncut gems came out in like December of 2019. Yeah. They are, but the movie, the two movies are very specifically set at opposite ends of the same NBA NBA season. Oh, really? The high flying bird takes place right before the season starts in 2011. And obviously uncut gems revolves around the 2012 playoffs. Yeah. Um, I just remember thinking that was so strange, like what a strange coincidence that these movies came out on opposite ends of the year and take place on opposite ends of the same less than 10 year old NBA season. Yeah. I totally forgot that high flying bird was at all a period piece. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, Tyler and I have talked about doing this forever. The like yeah. short, short distance period piece. Um, Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by like, why, why do you choose to do that? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, but, but as I recall, there were like um, labor disputes between the league and the players association that summer of 2011. And that's, that's, yeah, that's what it's in, about. In yeah. Or, yeah. So it's a good reason. All right. We should probably have an eye towards, wrapping up sure um, yeah i wanted to speed through okay um, i also have a couple that i want to speed a few some, that I want to speed through. yeah i mean my big topic that um we've only kind of addressed is just like the more kind of straight from stage to screen translations where they're like keep it in one location and even make it kind of clear in like the set design and performance styles that it's kind of coming straight from the stage so i think like alan renee is really a um, unsung master of this because he's so renowned for like his more kind of experimental and very like edit heavy kind of films. But, um, starting in the eighties and really continuing throughout the rest of his career, he routinely make these extremely stagey, like almost painfully. So at times, um, adaptations, um, largely of this one English playwright whose name I cannot off the top of my head remember. Um, but starting with this play called mellow that wasn't written by this playwright I have in mind, um, but is very like clearly like a built set and handful of actors. And you can't imagine they took out anything from the player, changed anything in order to get it on screen. Um, but the big one that I'm, I, that I absolutely love, but is, uh, not hard, not easy to find and not easy to watch is smoking, no smoking, which is like something like four and a half hours long, um, because it's technically two plays that, um, explore divergent timelines based on whether or not someone, uh, accepted or smoked a cigarette at the start of 
the play. Um, and that's what the title kind of alludes to. And they go in extremely wacky directions, but it's just like, it's a, literally just two people in the cast um, who play, as I recall, a series of different characters, um, all kind of launching from these two divergent timelines. But it's so fascinating if you're at all into like, storytelling divergence or just like really Alain Renee's like whole experiment throughout his career of like um kind of the subjectivity of storytelling um and just really extrapolates that that to a very weird and wide extreme um so that's a great great movie um and then one of my favorites of all time is uh the importance of being earnest um, the 1950s version that is directed by mm-hmm. Anthony Asquith, um, which opens with um, kind of over the shoulder shots of something, someone leafing through the program of a play. And that's how they get through the film credits. So it has like the sense right away. They're like, okay, you are watching the play and it takes like some very small liberties throughout. And there's like, as you get towards the finale, there's some cross cutting that obviously you wouldn't get on the stage, but for the most part, it's an extremely faithful adaptation of the text and is i mean the play is just so so funny but it's so well performed and that's definitely one that i go back to um fairly often as is uh the 1960s adaptation of boeing boeing um which stars jerry lewis and tony curtis as these two old friends um at like so this this is one of those plays that couldn't be written any other time so it takes place in the 60s around the time i think the play was from a couple years prior but the whole premise of it is that tony curtis has he's a journalist living i think he's a journalist living in paris um but essentially an american abroad who has this apartment and has three separate fiancés who all work for different international airlines and who he keeps up relationships with depending on what rotation they're on for their airlines and his whole world gets thrown apart because there's a new jet on the market that goes faster. And so the stewardesses start coming into his apartment at a, a different schedule than he expects. Meanwhile, his friend Jerry Lewis <laughs> is visiting and sees a setup and is like, I want a part of this. Surely you can spare me one of these three stewardesses. And the whole play becomes just a, an unraveling of this lifestyle and the two of them vying for the affections of various stewardesses. And it is so, so, so funny. I randomly saw it because uh at the new beverly this was before tarantino took it over properly but was still kind of paying their bills um he did a day of just like free jerry lewis movies he showed like four and you could just wander at any point and the only spot i had free was this movie boeing boeing that i'd never heard of but i was like i love jerry mm-hmm. lewis so i'm gonna see it but it's one of the rare movies where jerry lewis isn't playing the jerry lewis character he's playing like kind of a straight guy uh-huh. not but like uh, well sexually too but uh, um more in the dramatic sense of like he's you know as wacky as anyone in this kind of like sitcom setup would be but not like overtly wacky he was trying to kind of develop a side career as kind of a different angle on his persona um but i could not stop laughing at it and it's become one that i've returned to several times because it's a lot of fun um but it's very much like direct definitely a direct translation of the play um Um. And then this isn't quite a direct translation, but in some ways it is. But Vanya on 42nd Street, I totally love. Um, and it's like, so it's an adaptation of Uncle Vanya. But um, have you not seen it? I thought for some reason you had. I have not. I I think I have a Blu-ray, actually. Oh, okay. I don't think I've seen it. So, it's a, yeah, it's a pretty direct translation of Uncle Vanya. But it's like 
taking the form of a rehearsal almost where it's the cast kind of just in their regular clothes and like kind of on a half form set running through the play. Um, So it kind of has this art separation, but it's, I mean, the play is great, of course, but it's just a really moving way to explore kind of the purpose of restaging old classics and bringing them into the modern era while still uh, kind of doing due diligence to them. Um, Yeah. It's a really great movie. Yeah, I remember. I'm remembering now that I saw the documentary about Andre Gregory, which is called "Before and After Dinner." Oh, sure. And I think there are scenes from that in there. Um, all right. Uh, I wanted to mention um, uh, both Fences and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, yeah. Based on August Wilson plays, uh, they're both really good movies, and they both like don't do a whole lot to not be playlike and. And yeah. that doesn't bo- that doesn't bother me, but it's sad that August Wilson he died in two thousand five, so he didn't get to see uh, either of them. Um, well, so, sorry, real quick on that. Um, so Denzel Washington has this whole project where he's bringing all of August Wilson's plays to uh, well now Netflix. I think originally they're going to set up at HBO, um, but the next one they're doing is the Piano Lesson, which I saw okay. on Broadway earlier. Oh. No, at the end of last year. And so it's uh, Denzel, sorry, not Denzel Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, John David Washington, uh, Ray Fisher, and, um, oh, shit, they didn't bring over Daniel Brooks um, from the play. But, um, yeah, the play was great and and one of the best plays I've ever seen. Um, So I'm really excited to see it when that hits Netflix next year. Did you see, oh, man, this is going to take me so long to find the name of if you don't remember it. Okay. Samuel Samuel Jackson's in a lot of stuff. But speaking of... Well, HBO, you said Netflix, but originally HBO stuff. Um, Samuel Jackson and, and and Tommy Lee Jones. Was it the were, Sunset Limited? The Sunset Limited. And that's, um, what's his name, right? Cormac like McCarthy. The, uh, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, I saw that. That kicks ass. I still have not uh, seen that. Do you know the premise? No, I actually don't. That um, Samuel Jackson plays a like subway, like transit worker, who uh stops Tommy Lee this all happens before we see we meet them he pulls Tommy Lee Jones back from the edge of the track because Tommy Lee Jones was about to commit suicide so he stopped him from, from committing suicide and then brought him home to his apartment um to like make sure he was okay and they end up having like a 90 minute existential debate about like the worthiness of life <laughs> classic uh, Cormac McCarthy it's awesome yeah uh okay so um what else did i want i also want i can't believe i went this far without mentioning a movie that i absolutely love uh six degrees of separation so need to see that it's so good uh fred scapizzi the director has the most like chaotic schizophrenic career as a director his stuff is like all over the place but um six degrees of separation as a like uh um i guess it's not i wouldn't call it satire but it's definitely um has a certain kind of like upper class intelligentsia and its crosshairs um but again like we were saying earlier with archie bunker also a lot of compassion um but yeah that's the if people don't know it's a movie where uh a young will smith uh plays a con artist who um gets rich people like rich upper east side new yorkers to like put him up and give him money and cook food for him and take on dinner stuff by pretending to be the son of Sidney poitier right uh, 
such a cool movie. Uh, all right, let's. I'm gonna run through some that I'm just like, hey, how did we not mention? Yeah, I know we're both we're both fans of Joseph Losey's Boom. Yeah, um, hell yeah. Which is, uh, and, and it's it's an insane movie because it's Elizabeth Taylor at like 35 playing a character who is clearly supposed to be this like grand dame, um, and then uh, Richard Burton who is clearly older than the role was intended. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Losey apparently wanted to ca- cast uh, James Fox. Uh, who in oh, sure. the 1960s would have been the perfect sort of like uh, young uh, roguish charmer for that. Uh, anyway, but yeah, insane movie. The Boys in the Band, another William Friedkin one we, yeah. just, uh, we both saw recently. What else? Just going alphabetically. Oh, there's the front page slash His Girl Friday. Um, oh, God, yeah. How can we not touch yeah. on that? So, those, yeah, yeah, I've seen two adaptations of the front page and obviously His Girl Friday in addition to those two. And every time I think about it, his girl Friday made the right choice in every regard to do the gender swap thing. It just improves on it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember, um, I think Natalie and I saw, I think it was my first time saw his girl Friday at the arrow. It was his girl Friday and ball of fire. So it was a Howard Hawks, uh, double feature. Um, and ever in the car afterwards, like mentioning to Natalie, like, did you know that in the play, they're both men and there's no like romantic element to it. She was like, what? That's stupid. Yeah. Uh, noises off is the one we're both, for, yeah. both uh, fans of. Let's see. Um, I don't know. A raisin in the sun. I read that play in high school. Uh, yeah. Was there anything else I needed to get to streetcar named desire? We didn't talk about. Um, I mentioned oh, streetcar speaking- very briefly, but yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Howard Hawks, 20th century. Um, yeah. So 20th century is like, one of those that like totally because you sometimes read these stories of like people losing their minds at theatrical productions um Uh just like their audacity or whatever from this kind of era and 20th century feels like it has the unhinged kind of quality that must have been just commonplace on the stage in those days uh yeah and i remember uh i saw 20th century at a tcm fest and uh you always get fun stories uh in the intros for uh yeah. tcm things you hope they're true but it, if they're good you enough stories yeah. if, if, you're, if it's a good enough stories it doesn't matter um and whoever was introducing it said uh howard hawks went to lylan barrymore and said um the character is the world's biggest ham i need the world's biggest ham to play him <laughs> uh and then uh frank capper did uh you can't take it with you that i remember being like kind of Fine, but that was a play that I was familiar with. I had worked on a community oh. theater production uh, of it already, so I was um, interested to to see it. I think um, the most interesting thing I think about you can't take it with you uh, is that like uh, Jimmy Stewart is in it, but he's not Jimmy Stewart yet, quite. Yeah, totally. But but you can um, you can you can see obviously. Uh, what's what's coming and yeah. of course he would have done mr business washington the next year um, oh yeah so yeah is that the movie would you is, do you think that's the movie that made jimmy stewart jimmy stewart mr oh, God. washington i think that's I too complicated a question for me to think of offhand yeah. i know there are some from slightly beforehand like even just 1938 that i kind of like think of as like more directly establishing that okay um i was just looking at the selected credits of his brief um wikipedia thing here but vivacious lady is kind of one that not enough people have seen but really you can tell like 
that's got the bones of the classic Jimmy Stewart okay. character. Okay. Um, but speaking of him, like, and stuff that we would be, uh, loath not to mention, but the Philadelphia story is a great oh, adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. totally like, and that's a pretty direct translation of the play. Um, but still like feels like it's just as zippy as any movie. It doesn't yeah. feel like it, that's a play yeah. necessarily. Um, sorry, I'm kind of taking over your, your slot here. Did you have others that you wanted to mention that you feel no, like? Cause we, I went you know, alphabetically with... and you can't take it with, he was the last. There you moment. go. Um, so uh, Casablanca, I mean, we, you, and I, you and I both saw Will Success, Boyle Rock Hunter. You'd already seen it, but we saw it at yeah. the Fest. That was my first time. Um, great movie. Love that movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, Casablanca oh, is famous to me, but it's not a play that nobody has ever read or seen performed. Cause like, why would you, um, Oh, like Casablanca. Moonlight. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, Casablanca was, I think literally there was like a play that was performed. I just mean like okay. at this point, no one's putting it on anymore because Casablanca is just too famous. Um, that's such a there was such a strange thing about like the the oscar eligibility for, like moonlight was considered an adapted screenplay because it was based on a play that was never produced yeah so strange yeah um let's see what else well brief encounter um is based on oh, a play yeah. called um, still life oh yeah okay um i don't know why that stuck with me i took a class tyler and i both took a class on on david lean in in film school and for some reason the title of the Noel Coward play stuck with me. Sure. Hopefully other uh, stuff too, but yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, Marty, the fi- movie from the fifties. It's a, I've never seen it. Oh, it's really great. And, uh, um, the dryer movie or debt is based on a play, um, which I didn't realize, but you can totally see it while you watch it. Um, let's see other semi famous or fairly famous. I mean, kind of hot tin roof is pretty, pretty great. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I really like it. Um, Speaking of, we talked about Billy Wilder earlier and like kind of alluded to the fact that I'm not that big a fan of him, but I do love one, two, three, which is based on a play and kind of captures the manic fun of a full on farce. Um, and I, one of the biggest ones that we haven't talked about is who's a Virginia Wolf, okay. um, which I have some issues with it as an adaptation. I think it's a real sin that they ever leave the house and go to that like restaurant or whatever, um, because so much of the play success to me hinges on being trapped in that house for three hours. Um, but you know, as far as the acting goes and the translation verbally of the play, that's, that's all really solid. I just, I always wish they never left that house. You know, there's, um, um, a bit of Oscar trivia that's related to who's very Virginia Woolf too. Um, there are three movies ever where the entire cast was nominated for an Oscar. Okay. Um, let's see. One of them is who's afraid of Virginia Wolf. The other one is Sleuth. And then there's, um, there's a movie that only has one person in it. Um, that I am not secret honor. I'm guessing. No, it's, Oh, is it give him hell? Harry. It is give him hell. Harry. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. Thank you for saving me on that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the only three movies in which every cast member was nominated for an Oscar. And rightly so for at least Virginia Woolf, the one of those three I've seen. Um, and the one with the biggest cast for that matter, um, they are all really great. Um, this isn't really a famous movie, but I just, always want to mention that cactus flower is so much fun um that was like i think goldie hans first movie or something like that and she's a blast um fassbender's uh the bitter cheese of petra von kant is very clearly a stage adaptation Uh, that's one i should have mentioned like the all takes just housebound kind of thing but 
totally takes advantage of a specific perspective, similar to like rope. Um, yeah. And then Peter von Kant, which is Francois Ozon's. Yeah. A lot of fun. Um, more recent. Yeah. I mean, fun's maybe not the right word, but it's got a concern edge. Um, stuff. Yeah. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, based on the novel, but was also a play before it was a movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, the Goodbye Girl is kind of like a bit of a hammy stage adaptation. Like, it's definitely Richard Dreyfus being like, I can do anything, but it's it's uh, engaging and enjoyable. Oh, Amadeus. We haven't talked about Amadeus at all. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But that's like a huge, and that's one that Julie, Julie hadn't seen before. So we went to see it at the Academy for recently. And I was, I hadn't seen it since high school, but man, that movie's so good. You mentioned The Goodbye Girl. We didn't mention Neil Simon at all. There have been so many oh, adaptations. Yeah. But I feel like I think the only one I've seen, I've seen The Odd Couple and I've seen Barefoot in the Park. I think those yeah. might be the only other two besides Goodbye Girl that I've I seen. Goodbye Girl. I haven't seen Chapter oh, Two. Um, I have seen Biloxi Blues. Did he do Sunshine Boys? Oh, that might be him, but I never yeah, saw it. I, I've seen the 70s version of that. That's, a, that's actually a, like a, you kind of go in expecting it's going to be like pure modeling stuff, but that's a pretty solid movie. Okay. Um, it's got some real edge to it. Yeah, that was him. Uh, yeah. Um, the elephant man is another really famous adaptation. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and like the elephant man's interesting because on stage, they don't do the whole like elaborate makeup thing because that'd be a nightmare to put on night after night, let alone twice a day, um, two times a week. But, um, that's like, I think the one major thing they could do in a, in a film adaptation, in addition to like all the other great, um, ambiance that David Lynch lends it. Well, yeah, I think, um, Anyone who's online as much as I am has seen the stills of Bradley Cooper's uh, Bradley Cooper right. the man contorting his face and body, which you hope plays better in person, but you never really yeah. know. Um, I think those are all the really major ones. I got tons of other minor ones that I'm sure listeners are eager to hear about, but there's just too many to ever cover in one episode. So fill in yourselves. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's it. You can find us at battleshipretention.com um, on my other podcast there. It's called The One Where I Met Your Mother. Uh, email me at david, about, david at battleshipretention.com. You can email Tyler at tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Davy Pretension. Tyler's at Tyler Pretension or at More Lessons uh, on, on, on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Letterboxd at David Bax. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, Scott, where can people find you? Yeah, um, real quick, I did want to mention that I didn't. I purposely left out Shakespeare adaptations because you guys have done two episodes on that subject, <laughs> and so it was yeah. unnecessary to cover. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, Twitter and Blue Sky, Rayla Tomorrow, Letterbox, my name, and yeah, got a review up this week for Poor Things. We'll have reviews by the time, or not by the time this post, but in the week after this post for um two other movies that i've forgot oh the taste of things and something else that i forgot the title of so look for those okay well um yeah thanks at home for listening we'll get you next time bye bye